Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This episode of the Motherkind podcast is kindly sponsored by Zendium Toothpaste. I've been sharing about Zendium for a few weeks now, but did you know that they also do a kids range? So Zendium's kids toothpaste contain natural enzymes already present in the mouth. So every time they brush, it boosts your children's mouth's natural defences, giving them extra power to fight the causes of dental problems. Zendium Kids and Junior Toothpaste have mild flavours, which are perfect for our children's more delicate mouths. And they're free from SLS, which is a foaming agent that can irritate our children's gums. So please do check out the kids range. Also, keep an eye out on the Motherkind Instagram because I'm going to run a competition where you can win both adults and the kids range to try for yourselves. In the meantime, head to zendium.co.uk, pop in Motherkind at the checkout for 20% off. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. I wonder how you are all doing in the craziness that continues in our world. I hope that the podcast is providing you a little moment of inspiration, maybe reassurance. I think this episode is a pretty special one. It's with Latham Thomas. Latham, after giving birth to her son in 2003, she set out on a mission to help women reclaim birth. She's a graduate of Columbia and the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And Latham is a world-renowned wellness leader a master birth doula. She was named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100. She's authored two books, both of which I highly recommend, one called Mama Glow and one called Own Your Glow. Latham teaches at universities and hospitals all around the world, helping them to improve the patient labour and delivery experience. So whilst Latham's a doula and we talk about birth, I think this episode is so fantastic for right now because what it gave me when I did the interview and when I listened back was perspective. And I think that's something that we all really need right now. I know I do. This episode is about beginnings and endings. It's about transitions. It's about birth and death. And Latham beautifully describes the passing of her grandmother. And I challenge you not to cry and be moved. I also challenge you not to listen to this episode and feel a sense of peace and perspective. I'll say that word again, because what I really connected to in this episode is what really matters. And there's an exercise that I do sometimes with clients, which is to write their own 80th birthday speech. And the reason I do that is because often it's so easy, particularly now, to get totally embroiled in the day-to-day. And before we know it, years have passed, sometimes even decades. So I asked Latham what she wanted her legacy to be, which is a version of that question. And 
her reply was absolutely beautiful and again moved me to tears lots of crying in this episode we also talk about the incredibly important subject of the black maternal health crisis and whilst it's a really challenging listen it's a really really important listen and Latham challenges us all to think about what we can do about this issue because it is a human rights issue so I hope that you love the episode if you did as ever please do share drop me a note on Instagram tell me what you got out of it I really hope that this episode will help you helicopter above some of the day-to-day day challenges we're all facing right now and think about the bigger picture here it is Nathan welcome to the podcast I am so excited to have you here I was just telling you how when I was first pregnant five years ago a friend in one of my recovery support groups gave me your book and it was incredible. Maybe I'll tell you a bit about my experience as we go through the chat, but I started a list when I started the podcast of people that I would love to chat with, and you've been on that list for about three years. So I'm really excited for this conversation. I also think there couldn't be a better time for us to be having this conversation than now. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be in conversation with you and to see the turn of events come full circle. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that you say your work isn't a passion, it's a calling. And I'm wondering, how did that calling find you? It was interesting because, you know, my journey to this work really started around, I always say my pregnancy, but it also really started when I was a child, around four years old. My mother was pregnant. At the same time as my aunt and my great aunt, and they were all due within a month of each other. And so as a four-year-old, I was sort of walking around and seeing their bellies grow and having this fascination with pregnancy. I had a cousin who was maybe like 10 months older than me. So we were very close and we would stuff little dolls, like little cabbage patch dolls under our shirts and pretend to deliver each other's babies. And it was just so much fun at that time. And my mother would have me watch programs around bodily autonomy and body literacy. And there were these conversations in my home around, you know, body parts and language. And so at a really early age, I understood the anatomy of labor and birth through the context of my mother's experience. And so one thing she's really proud of when I was little, I would, you know, just correct people, you know, someone in the grocery store would say, oh, your mother has a baby in her stomach. And I said, no, my mother has a baby in her uterus and it's going to come out of her vagina. And so I think people just got used to me being that kid that was really into the clarity of speech and the understanding of like really what it is that we're talking about. Right. And really what it means to talk about our bodies. And so I think for me, that was like the start and fast forward to sort of my pregnancy of my son that led to a place where I ended up delivering with midwives I had this incredible out-of-body experience where I was visited by my ancestors and I knew the day that my son was born that I would be doing this work. I didn't know in what capacity, but I knew that I was called to do it then. And it was sort of like the full circle moment from when I was a child. But then there was also these other moments where this sort of constellation was taking shape in that I had resisted the call right away because I had a newborn. And so I had to wait some time before I could actually get out into the world to do the work. But 
I had some moments where I was in an ashram and it was my birthday and there was a ceremony, a puja ceremony for my birthday. And then there was a, a Vedic astrology reading. And in that reading, the astrologer said, you're supposed to mother the mother. And he gave me some dates that he said, just keep track of these dates or these numbers. These numbers mean something to you. They weren't dates, but they were numbers. And I was like, all right, cool. And I wrote the numbers down. I still have this in a journal, you know, this is from so long ago. And I came back to New York and was settled in. And this is back in the day when you didn't email, you check email maybe like once a month. Like it was definitely not something that you checked every day and certainly not multiple times a day. And I got an email that I had been in and I looked at the date and the date corresponded with one of the numbers that he had also given me. And so the further confirmation that this was the path that I was on. And so I just continued to do the work from that point. I was like, okay, noted, I'm going to follow the course. And the reason I say calling is because, you know, passion is really great because passion can fuel your journey, right? Passion can give you the actual energy and the chi or the life force, right? Passion delivers that. And so it can keep your interest, it can keep you excited, and it could help motivate and move you. But when you talk about passion, it also can fizzle when things get challenging, when things get tough or impossible, when you have insurmountable challenges, passion isn't enough at a certain point. And like a lot of people you'll talk to, they're still sitting on their passions, quote unquote, because life steps in and then there's something that keeps them away from doing that thing. A calling you cannot not respond to. You cannot ignore. A calling is not convenient. It is not something that fits really neatly into a box like your passions might, right? And a calling is something that when I think about this work, it's the calling that wakes me up in the middle of the night, you know, put a snowsuit on my baby, hail a taxi because there's no Uber, take my baby to his grandfather's house, put him in the bed, hail another taxi in the middle of a snowstorm with snow boots on and a big old coat on and head to somebody's place in the middle of the night to support them through birth. So inconvenient. Babies come on their birthdays. They don't come at a really beautiful time of day that fits into your schedule, right? And so it's not passion that calls you to do that, right? It's not passion that sort of guides you to continue to show up in that way. It is purpose. It is a calling that allows you to hook into that energy and to sustain yourself beyond points of challenge, beyond points of where you don't have the fortitude. It is the calling that's sort of the overarching compass and really the North Star in your pursuit of whatever it is that you're being that's imprinted on your soul to do. And I believe that's really what it is. It's an imprint. It's not just, oh, I'm really excited about this thing. I'm really passionate about, I'm passionate about probably a bunch of things, right? I love doing a lot of stuff, but what are the things that I cannot live without doing? What are the things that keep knocking at the door, keep sort of tapping me on the shoulder for years and years? And this is what it feels like for people when they think about that call. You know, that call is incessant and it is inconvenient and it is uncomfortable, but it is part of your purpose to pursue, right? So that's what I'm really talking about when I talk about this work, right? And not from the context of like all the beautiful fun and glorious things that come from it. I'm also talking about the really painful and draining and challenging parts of it as well. And that we have to show up for all of that. 
it's so inspiring to hear that story and gives me tingles. I've heard you share it before about the, the ashram. And I wanted to talk about being born as a mother because you wrote this. I can't, I've done so much delving into your work this week. I can't remember whether this was a podcast or where you said this, but this just really spoke to me. And you said, what I learned from birth is that how you're made to feel during that process and shortly thereafter improves everything that happens for the rest of your life. If we're made to feel incapable, inferior, not supported, that affects how you navigate your life after. And the reason that I think that spoke to my heart is that my birth rewrote a very powerful story for me. I had this story running that I was weak and I would perpetually give my power away. And I had this transformational experience with Gumuk Kalsa. I'm sure you have know her. So I trained with her when I was pregnant and I ended up having the most empowering home birth. And I was born as a woman. I met myself. And it made me cry when I read that, partly because it resonated so deeply with the awakening that then happened in me and that I'm able to now, I birthed mother kind and the visions that I have for it. Gosh, if I could do a tiny bit of what you've done with Mama Glow, it would be my dream. But I also cried for all the women who didn't have that experience. And I feel like when you're thrown into motherhood, having had a disempowering experience at birth, I cried for them when I read that quote the other day. And I wondered if you could talk to this idea of how we birth deeply affects how we mother and who we are in the world. First of all, thank you for sharing your journey and your story and that grounding of being with someone like Ramuk and having the discipline, the energy, and also the, the community, right? That Ramuk has cultivated that you probably felt very swaddled in at the time prepares you for an experience that you were able to actually bring into fruition. So that's so beautiful to hear. And I actually used to teach at Golden Bridge in New York, prenatal yoga. So it's amazing that another thing that weaves us together in, um, in sisterhood. I think that how you birth is how you live and, and part of who you are. And in some instances, it's the first sort of major life transition for who you are to become. And so for many people, it's the first moment of great transition. For some people, it's the biggest transition of their lives. It is a rite of passage. It's also like a hero's journey when we talk about like these life arcs that take us from one place to the next and sort of what we get, what we lose and what we gain along the way. And this sort of crossing of portals or thresholds that create spaces for us to shed who we are and who we once were to come through this portal onto the other side anew and a divine version of ourselves, even more divine version of ourselves, you know, comes across and is revealed. And I think sometimes that person scares us because we don't recognize that aspect of ourselves just yet. And also we haven't cultivated a community to support us for who we are becoming. We live in a society that under supports birthing people and doesn't honor the unique transition and also the sort of hormonal and physical, neurological, spiritual, mental, and emotional changes that take place throughout a pregnancy and postpartum experience, right? And so we haven't created 
spaces for that in our culture. And every world culture has a tradition that supports pregnant women. But in our modern society, and we looked at, you know, developed nations and how they sort of treat pregnant people, it's as if you're just going through this thing and it's mostly pathologized. And then you come on the other side and you have a lack of support. Throughout the process, you have a lack of support and people expect you to be who you once were and do everything the same. And there's really no space for the magic, the mystery, and sort of the fullness for you to be in engaged with that in awe. So what happens for many people is that they seek to have an experience. They may have moments where they're not honored, where they're not seen, supported, where they're neglected, where they are not validated in their discomfort, their pain, whether they are mistreated, whatever it looks like, right? Everybody has a story about like how they endured their experience. And what's most important is that when they come on the other side of that experience and after they are able to process, right, what the birth was for them, that they see it through a lens of empowerment. They see it through a lens of transformation. And you have a lot of people that don't feel that. They come on the other side and feel harmed, come on the other side and feel pain, feel trauma, are holding on to not only experiences that happened to them in that moment, but are also carrying the stories and experiences of their foremothers. And so it becomes a really challenging experience, and not just for the individual, but culturally, when we have people who come on the other side of the portal of birth and do not feel themselves, right? Do not feel whole. What's so important is for people to realize like everything touches everything else, right? And so how you birth and the impact of that experience will dictate whether or not you have the capacity to speak up for yourselves in other situations. If I was made to feel silent in that process, in that room, it's really hard for me to speak up for myself in other spaces like a boardroom to ask for a raise, It'll be hard for me to speak up maybe with my partner about what I would like sexually or sensually or otherwise. It'll be hard for me to, you know, speak up on my own behalf if I'm made to feel silenced. If I was harmed in a way where boundaries were transgressed, it'll be really hard for me until I deal with that pain, right? It'll be really hard for me to show up for myself in moments where someone is threatening upon my boundaries, It'll be hard for me to say to myself, yes, it's time to sleep. You're tired and say the correct response in this moment is self-care and actually look after myself and say, I'm going to rest. I'm going to take the bath. I'm going to have the tea, take the nap, whatever it is. It'll be really hard for me to erect those boundaries around my needs when my needs were neglected or my boundaries were transgressed. Right. So all these things connect to everything else. And when people talk about like, oh, you should just do this, or why don't you just do that? It's not as easy when we don't feel that we deserve or it's ingrained in us, or it's been something that we've been trying to like weed out of who we are, but it's part of not just who we are, but the collective. It's part of who we are ancestrally. It's part of something that we might be trying to change in terms of the legacy we've inherited, right? So it becomes very complicated, but it really does come down to feeling honored, feeling safe, and feeling grounded in an experience, you know, where you can be fully in your body and you can ascend out of the thinking brain, like the brain can shut off so that you can really just dial into what's happening physically and spiritually and emotionally. 
and allow your hormones to be governed by the emotions and the wave of love that you feel that can help your birth progress. Most people are entering into the space, some of which feel really great and things are moving great, but others where they're entering into the space in an active state of stress, right? Acute stress or episodic stress that they're showing up or they're in a loop of chronic stress going into their birth experience. And so that's going to have a physiological effect on the process. That's going to have a psychological effect on them. That's going to impact them and the relationships in that space. And so I think it's so important for us as we journey and as we think about this and contextualize the process to understand that, you know, there's a lot of things that are so important that we don't factor and that we don't consider as critical to making the experience one where somebody feels like you did when you emerged from your birth. So it's so important for us to, to think about like the details and not just count for the flow of events, but really think about like, how do I want to feel? What's my memory going to be like of this experience? What do I want to think about? I'm always thinking about that as a doula, right? Like, how do you recall this experience? When you tell the story, what are you going to say? I'm concerned about that story, not about everything else, right? All those things are important, but the most important thing to me is how do you recall this experience? How are you made to feel? And do you feel whole? That is like the most important thing to me. And if somebody emerged from an experience that they had where they weren't meant to feel safe, where they didn't feel seen, where they did feel neglected, if they do have the opportunity in their next birth, or if they have the opportunity to come and do doula training and I'm able to help them heal that, that's the space I am in with them, right? One of reclamation, one of seeing them whole again, and also bringing to the surface those things that are lying dormant inside of us that become lodged in traumas and things that can really impact how we move through our lives, right? So we really want to unearth those things and bring them to the surface so that we can actually deal with them. There's so much in there, but I think the thing that really strikes me and I still find this so fascinating that as women, I think the birth of our child, however that happens, right, is the one thing we will never forget in our lives. And yet, and I think this is a societal problem, not an individualistic one. It's fascinating how I see some of my friends even preparing more for their holiday, for example, doing more research and prep than they might into their birth and people joke like people joke about how much I prepped for the birth but I was like I'm never going to forget this I'm going to do everything I can as you said so that I leave feeling empowered however it goes and Gurmuk taught me babies know how they want to come if you have an emergency section that baby knew that was its path but you can still feel empowered through the whole thing And I'm wondering, you know, in your work, you've trained hundreds of doulas, maybe thousands at this point. Where is that disconnect? You've touched on it, that as a society, we devalue birth. What can we do as individuals? Maybe even if people have finished having their babies, you mentioned doing the healing work afterwards. How can we make this incredibly important experience that it is in our lives before or maybe after? Things like this, right? So you're holding space through the podcast, which is an educational tool. It's a reflective space. It's a community, right? For folks to chime in and feel seen and feel witnessed, feel heard and feel like they can tell their own story, right? So 
I think that it's individuals doing their own part, whether you're teaching doulas, whether you're a midwife, whether you're a mom sitting on a park bench, talking to somebody who looks pregnant and just saying, Hey, like, tell me about your experience. And here's my story. And, you know, I think one of the things that people do a lot that can be harmful, like this negative forecast, like, well, I had this bad experience this is what you should do. And just assuming that somebody wants the same type of birth that you want, assuming that they think like you, I remember people would say to me, Oh girl, go ahead and get the epidural. Like it'll be easy. And I was like, how do you even know that that's something that I would want? I didn't. And that wasn't the birth that I had. And, you know, I was in a birth center, so there was no drugs on the premises, but it wasn't also something I was thinking about. And I was like, wow, we all have different desires for how we would do this. And I think it's important to honor that. And you know, and not stigmatize anyone's choices because there are people who, quite frankly, the only life save, you know, measure for them to be able to have their babies come safely and for them to survive childbirth would be to have a cesarean delivery, right? There are some people where, you know, we come to parenthood through many pathways. So there are people who have come through a tremendous amount of loss with, you know, miscarriages and maybe IVF or IUI or finding a way maybe through surrogacy or you know, adoption. I mean, there's so many pathways. And then you think about like different types of family configurations and how challenging it might be to find your way, whether you're LGBTQ plus or trans, trying to start your family that way and and figuring out like how to navigate the space. It's like, it's so challenging for everybody, wherever you are. I think starting with a place of non-judgment is so important, not assuming anything. This idea of like, basically not assuming anything is really important. If I come into it and I allow you to tell your story versus me coming in and laying it on, like, you know, what I know, instead, if I listen, I might learn something, but I might be able to impart something that actually is beneficial to you because I listened first. And so I think listening is really key. A lot of people want to be heard. A lot of people want to tell their own stories. I think non-judgment is really important. And yeah, and non-assumption. Don't assume that you know, or that somebody would want to know what it is that you want to share, especially if it's something that's from a standpoint that isn't like empowering or that might be like jarring to hear. If somebody is in their seventh month and you're like, oh my God, like you're telling them something that's on its way and it happened to you, but it might not be in their pathway and you might put something on them that now they're anxious about. Right. So I think that's part of it too, is right. Really like being mindful that these are people who have feelings and their feelings change the physiology of their pregnancies. (laughs) So it's like important not to just like emotionally dump onto people what you haven't been able to process for yourselves. Right. And using other pregnant people as almost like an emotional dump to put on someone else, you know, that you hope you're teaching them something, but sometimes it comes out that you're just like dumping something onto them that wasn't necessary. I think what's really great though is community, right? Like you had community during your pregnancy, you had a place to go where you could connect and confide and ask questions and see people at different various stages. And I think that's really important. And it's so hard right now during a time of quarantine, right? But how could you create or reimagine community online? And so individuals, we can do this. Collectively, as a community, we can do this. For the folks who are pregnant in our lives, we can make sure they don't feel alone because pregnancy in the time of COVID can be extremely isolating, we already know motherhood is isolating, right? Because, you know, after people leave, after people start dropping off food and checking in on you, it's lonely. And so imagine what pregnancy and postpartum look like now in a time of distance, a physical distance, right? And so 
all of us should be thinking about how we can cultivate community through the distance, but also how we can better support people who are on this path, knowing that we don't have the societal structures in place to make sure that people feel their best and that they feel like they have the handholding that they need, right? How can we fill some of those gaps? And I think it's individually, like you said, each of us sort of looking to see what's needed in our individual communities, our friendship groups and circles, our work and relationship circles, and attending to people in that way. Something that you said I've never thought of before, and I often talk about what we don't heal, we pass on, but I've realized too linearly. I'm thinking about that generationally, but what you were saying was so enlightening for me because also if we don't heal our experiences, we pass them on. If we don't heal our birth experiences, we pass them on generationally, of course, because we know that how our mother's birth has a huge impact on, on the imprinting of our births, but to our, as you say, into our community. I wanted to talk to you about the black maternal health crisis. And you talked about earlier the impact of people going into birth in chronic stress or stressed. And I cannot imagine how it must feel to be a black pregnant woman knowing the statistics. Because surely, how would you not be going into your birth stressed about that? Can you talk to that and what someone like my listeners can do, you know, many of whom will be black, many of whom, you know, will be white. What we can do as a collective, you've kept talking about community, perhaps share some of the statistics. I mean, I've been sharing them. They've been shared in the UK kind of birthing community quite widely, but it would be fantastic just to re-educate everyone listening on the overwhelming statistics. So in the US and the UK, actually, these numbers are comparable for black maternal deaths. So you see that black women are four to five times more likely than white women to die during childbirth or due to childbirth related causes. In the UK, the number is the same. And so people are like, how is that possible? Well, there's a couple of things that we factor. When we look at chronic stress, we talked about stress, right? And so I want to break down what that can look like first, right? So that we can see how somebody can already be in the position that they're vulnerable before even pregnancy starts. So you have people who, if you think about black and brown populations that are working under, really under stressful conditions, if you think about not just folks who are economically depressed, if you look at the statistics, what they say is that black women who even have a postgraduate degree, right? So almost highest level of education possible, they have a worse chance of survival after childbirth than white women with high school level of education. So we know that it's not education. We know that it's not economics. We know that it's not just what you're eating and diet. We know that it's systemic racism that sets up this playing field, not just inside the hospital, but there are forces that are working outside on people before they even enter the hospital. And it's exacerbated by the systems that they have to operate under when they enter into the institutions, right? The medical institution. So what does this look like, right? So when we think about some of the major areas of illness and vulnerability, we're looking at asthma, we're looking at diabetes, we're looking at heart disease or heart related disorders, blood disorders, placental disorders that all lead to some of these maternal deaths or near misses, we're talking about people who start off under tremendous stress, right? From, and we're talking about 
all types of stress. But when we think about like the stress of the lived experience of being a black or brown person, racism weathers your body. And so what that means is like every single day that you have to encounter the oppression, the oppressive forces that you're like sort of operating under that weathers your body. So it, it erodes your nervous system and the nervous system responds to stress, right? And responds to stress in many ways that are actually debilitating. In the short term, the stress response is one that is obviously helpful. But if you have chronic stress hormones through your bloodstream, it really can debilitate the body and actually lead to autoimmune disease. It can lead to greater illness and disease and vulnerabilities later in life. But it can certainly put you at risk to be vulnerable in a time like we're living through, right? Like coronavirus, right? You might render yourself more vulnerable to take on any viral load, right? If any type of exposure, right, could like render you ill, for instance. And so you have people who are dealing with all that kind of stress, economic stress, you know, relationships, life, whatever, job. And then on top of that, there's things that they can't evade, like race, right? You can't like erase that. That's just part of what you're living into in the society. And then there's the greatest pandemic of them all. Poverty is a pandemic that we're living through too. And so then you have people who are living in places where they don't have access to adequate care and care providers, insurance, things of that nature, right? So that all of this stuff is compounded. So you have people who are economically well-off, who fall through the cracks. You have people who are also lower on the economic scale that also fall through the cracks, right? That are also in the same constituency. When they go into the hospital, what's been reported, and the same thing is being said of women in the UK, is that there's a lack of consistency of providers. There is a sense of neglect or being under-supported, a lack of listening or validation of feelings. I tell you that I have a headache or I'm feeling like I have blurred vision. You're telling me, no, just take a nap or, right, just like under-diagnosing or misdiagnosing, not treating this idea that like the black women are impervious to pain, right? So they can't feel pain. And so this idea that, oh, well, you're not really in pain. So not taking your pain seriously. So you're not treating the pain, all these types of things, right? Misdiagnosing. And so you have people who have sometimes illnesses that if they were treated right away would be not a big deal, but if they're not treated at all, become lethal. And so you have people who go throughout their pregnancy And, you know, these emergency deliveries are because like they had problems that became acute. We have people who then super healthy, no health issues go in and are mistreated and have instances where they have near misses. You know, we have a friend whose wife was perfectly healthy, spoke eight languages, was financially secure, had a really great job, went in to have a routine succession with her second child and did not come out alive to die by internal bleeding 10 hours after she delivered her son because of a laceration of her bladder. And nobody in that hospital deciding that it was important to take her back into the OR until 10 hours later, and she died there. And so these types of things happening to people, it's inexcusable, but there is something that we can do. And so in the United States, we have a Black Maternal Health Caucus, 
There is a set of bills that have been put forth, the Black Maternal Health Act. It's nine bills. And the one that I'm talking about, particularly uh, the Cura Johnson Act, is one that really looks at maternal deaths through this lens of uh, community allyship and support, doula programs, better accountability of practitioners and providers. So there's things like this that exist. And there's programs like this nationwide, but also in other countries. So just figure out like who's doing that work here. I know like Embrace UK has like put out a lot of the data, you know, on maternal health outcomes and constantly are in the dialogue around how to sort of address the inequities. So I think, you know, what we can do as individuals too is Think about what kind of programs that are led by people who are problem solving. Are there programs in your community, whether it's a midwifery program, whether it's a doula program, whether it's a program that's licensed mental health or social work or anything that touches sort of the maternal and child health area where you can be a part of supporting someone who's on their journey and helping them to not only maybe become a practitioner, but also to support those businesses that are doing the work to educate, empower, and make impact. That's what we're trying to do. Obviously, you know, we have folks who come to the training and it's cost prohibitive sometimes for people to take the training course, right? So we want to make sure that we have access to more doulas and more people who want to do this work and who want to be prepared for working with people who are in positions where they are vulnerable and understanding that there is a difference, right? When you go in, You know, some people don't realize that. And I'm always so thankful for the folks that are not black that come to do the trainings and that can see through that lens and understand how they can use their privilege and be an allyship and stand alongside these birthing people of whatever background and be able to use their voices. Right. It's so important to have that because this can't be a fight that we do in a silo alone, you know, birthing people or birth workers. It has to be all of us that centralize this is an issue as a really a human rights issue. We can't have people dying during childbirth. It's not the 1600s, right? This is 2020 and we have medical advancement and we have a lot of things now. Like this should not be happening. And so that's what I would like to see, like more people just understanding the issues, being able to have these conversations wherever, wherever they fit, bringing this conversation to the forefront to make sure that people talk about maternal health the way people talk about abortion access, right? We should talk about this entire continuum as one that needs to be protected, right? And that includes menses, that includes pregnancy, that includes abortion and loss, that includes miscarriage, that includes birth and breastfeeding, and that includes perimenopause and menopause, right? And so when we think about like all that entire continuum, there are entry points where we need to do better service provision and where can you show up? So if you're somebody who has counseling skills, like maybe you can help counsel somebody through loss, or maybe you can help counsel people who are in their postpartum phase. Maybe you can help counsel newly pregnant people. Like there are all kinds of ways you can show up. And so whether it's, you know, financially, whether it's through rolling up your sleeves and helping an organization, whether it's through grant writing, there's so many ways. So I would just encourage do a little self-inquiry around like your skill set and figure out like, what is it that I really love to do? oh my God, I love doing video or I'm really amazing at social media. I'm going to help this organization amplify their voice through social. I'm going to help this organization with flyers. I do graphic design. I'm going to help this organization with a fundraiser. I teach yoga and I'm going to host like a couple yoga classes and then donate the proceeds. Like there's so many things we can all individually do. So please don't feel like you as an individual is not enough or that you don't have a powerful enough voice. Know that, you know, wherever you are in your journey, 
you are enough and you showing up as one individual makes a huge difference. And you don't know at what juncture that's going to support somebody and make their day or really like make possible something that may have not have been possible without your donation of $200 or whatever it might be. So really think about like ways that you can be active in your support. Now you do not have to be a gazillionaire. You do not have to be someone who has infinite time on your schedule. You just have to have a willingness and really understand where your gifts lie and how you can be most impactful with your giving. I think that's so empowering the way that you describe it as systemic to talk about the changes that are needed in a governmental level and yet also sharing with us how as individuals from the ground up we can also help massively with this issue and it it loops back to what you were talking about actually around using our voice and advocating and empowerment and this isn't a black woman issue this is a woman issue first it should be the top of the feminist agenda and it's a human rights issue absolutely and I felt really emotional when you were sharing that story about your friend and I'm so sorry yeah I'm just so sorry Her name is Kira Johnson and her husband's Charles Johnson. And he's doing a lot of work to advocate for women and birthing people. And it's just really amazing to see a father show up in that way. Supports doulas, supports the birth work, and is really carrying the legacy of his wife forward. So yeah, their organization is called For Cure for Moms. If you want to learn more about just what he's doing. And also, if you do know someone who has suffered in this way, who has suffered this type of loss, and who needs to connect and loop in with community. That's like an example of going to support his organization and connecting with him. He's got a whole bunch of dads and other folks who've been left behind that he supports. And so that's also another way that you might be able to use your skill set or just bring your love and energy. Before we finish, I wanted to, partly selfishly maybe, because I want to hear your experience of this. And, you know, we've, we've touched on it about being born as a woman mm. through birth, through this whole continuum. And I love that you talked about it as a, as a continuum. And I'm wondering what was born in you, aside from the work and the calling, I'm wondering about your healing. And you touch on this in your second book. What is it that you, with your beautiful son, are looking to transform and transcend for the next generation? You know, I think for me... The birth was something where I didn't realize that I had the capacity to release. It's funny, I just said release, like, so the word unleash and release came through at once. So unleash, as well as release, so much power, and that it would come through a child, but also through my body, through my thighs, like opening my legs and releasing my son into the world and him being on my chest and feeling his heartbeat on the outside and vice versa. I didn't realize the profound impact that would have on me as it was unfolding. I didn't even realize until it happened. And I didn't realize that you could love somebody as much as I loved him before I even met him. And then when he came earthside, And I looked at him. I didn't realize that you could be so in love with someone. And so like all these things were like new to me, the sensations, the observations, the reflections, all of it was so new. I think that part of the 
arc of healing is that it's sort of like you're always in dialogue. You're always in this dance with the divine and moving through these portals of transformation that allow you to shed and to grow and to shed and to release and to expand. And so the pregnancy is obviously an expansion. And then you move through this next phase. And and for me, like coming on the other side of it was like, whoa, this is not what I was told it would be. I was visited by my ancestors in this experience. And in that, it was like I had this mandate. And the mandate was that I needed to protect this experience for people after me. And I didn't know what that meant, right, at that time. And not so much was it about the work that I came to do, so much as it was also about thinking about protecting the experience. It wasn't just the birth. It was also thinking about protecting future generations. It was like thinking about protecting my lineage forward to back. It was like thinking about the people who contributed to me being here. And I feel like it came full circle for me when I witnessed my grandmother in her passing and her transition into the afterlife. That's for me where it really coalesced this idea of birth becoming, expanding, and then contracting back into the greater vortex. And with her, the same exact skills that I use to support people, I used and my mother used and intuited when my grandmother was in her final days of life. And I don't do anything differently than what I did with her, with with people who are welcoming babies and welcoming themselves, right? the new version of themselves that's sort of emerging at that moment. And with her, I saw, because she had four generations present, like of females that she gave rise to, right? All the way down to great granddaughters that were with her. And my mother being her firstborn daughter was closest to her and was kissing her and stroking her and gave her her last kiss. That would be the last kiss that she would receive before she took her last breath. and. I think that that experience of that moment where she released and went back into whatever that is, whatever that void is, wherever that place is that we go, when she came on the other side and she took her last inhale and then she exhaled and then she didn't inhale again, it was like, oh, this is just the other side of it. This is just the other side. I awakened to the fullness of what the journey is really about because I'm so on the other side where baby crowns and it's like their third eye comes through and they see the light of the day and they take their first breath and they're welcome. And then it's like the same moment of when you think about the grief that comes in loss, there's also this like, is breathless when they watch the last breath and they're breathless when they watch the first breath. And it's just so, I don't know, it's just moving in that you need the same things to feel safety in birth as you do need to feel safe to let yourself go to pass on. And the things that you need to tell someone who is moving through those portals 
you know, when you think about the birth side, it was really about like, just, just be easy, just be soft, just relax and just like, let it happen. Right. Let go, let it happen. And when you do that, your body just does it. Right. And we said the same thing to my grandmother, just let it go. Let it happen. Like just, just relax your body. Just relax. Just let it be like, just let go. And when she started to not fear anymore and just was like, okay, I'm letting go. It's like her body became like still. And it was like meditative to even watch like how her body was rhythmic in its movement in those final moments. So all that to say that for me, the healing and the harnessing of energy is one of just like deep witnessing and bringing those experience inside and kind of like processing and making something beautiful out of what I've been able to be a part of, you know, like in what the memories are and what I was able to take from those experiences and being thankful because every single birth, it's almost like it's the first time every single time it's, I mean, it is for whoever I'm with, right? Even if it's like the fourth child, it's the first time with that baby, right? It's always the first, it always feels new. and. I would just encourage all of us as we think about, you know, our own paths to healing and, and being in dialogue with our um, emotions to allow yourself to feel and to live into the arc of experiences that do transform you. Because for me, I think that um, having witnessed that, having bore witness to my grandmother, somebody who, you know, changed my diapers and, looked after me and someone that I loved so deeply, someone who I resemble, you know, that guides me and her energy guides me. And she shows up in the classes I teach. And it's like amazing to still have that connection to her and to know that she lives inside of me and I carry her blood. And that for me is also healing to hold on to, you know, to know that like I did have to also let go. See, she had to also let go, but there are certain things I can still hold. And I think about that in life transitions, you know, that my son is going to college. And so I have to let go, but there are certain things that I get to still hold on to. And so I try to kind of be in that space of the dialogue, right. Around kind of like a letting go and a release, but what stays behind do I get to keep with me and what's really important for me to let go of. And that for me is part of, I guess, what the, the healing art, I would say looks like. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story about your grandmother. I was just so with you. I mean, I have seen a picture of her because you graciously shared it, but I could almost feel her last breath. It was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. When you think about your last breath, what would you like your legacy to be? I would like to leave behind space for folks to continue to grow. You know, I think about economic empowerment. I think about stability for people in my community. And I would hope that I was able to provide that for some generations for not just people who I was able to meet, but beyond folks that I was able to directly touch. I would hope that the babies that I was able to help usher into the world found their way to experiences that you know, led them to parenthood and great grandparenthood or whatever that looks like for them, you know, safely. 
I would hope that my son was able to start a family that I was able to watch grow. You know, I'd hope that, you know, we get to a place globally where we're really honoring women and women's bodies in this process. I hope we get to a place where we could really see that our differences make us stronger. And I hope that any work that I've done to help build bridges, that maybe I get to see some of it. Maybe I'll be able to see some of it come to life before I go. It's one of the biggest fears that I have, actually, is that things that are like on my heart won't be able to be expressed or be carried out. You know, I won't be able to actually complete those things before I go. And actually, when I think about what scares me the most, it's that. It's like having stuff left to still do. You know, when I think about people who call die young, right? You're like, they have so much left, not just life, but like things to do in the world. That's the scariest part is that you feel like, well, I have things I want to do that I want to express that I want to release, unleash onto the world, right? I would hope that a life well lived would be one where I was able to do those things in, in completion. And I hope that I'm given that kind of time to be able to do those things. Many of which I don't know what they look like just yet because I'm sort of being obedient to how spirit is asking me to order my steps. And so it's not always mapped in a way that um, I can articulate. But I mean, knowing that it's all in the vein of really looking at uh, transforming the landscape of, of reproductive health and prioritizing a reproductive justice framework for this pathway forward for all of us. Yeah, I hope that inside of that, I have some time to get some things done. And I would hope that in looking back, I would have the health of mind to be able to reflect back on on a life hopefully well lived. (laughs) It's beautiful. You moved me to tears. Don't make me cry. (laughs) I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world... What would that one gift be and why? Gosh, I'm teetering on companionship and I'm teetering on self-love. And companionship, I'm saying, is coming up for me because of the moment we're living in, right? And this idea of people feeling alone. And I would hope that maybe this leads to self-love because I would hope that like in a time where you've done something that you didn't even think was possible to do, that you feared doing and that you got through it and you came on the other side and no one was there to really like lift you through that. You know, no one's there to like help you on day three when your hormones are like out of control and your breast milk just came in and you don't know how to change a diaper or a swaddle. It's like, where is the companionship? You know, I just, I would hope that like everyone could have a companion and not just a great partner, but somebody that they could call who could just come over and hold the baby while you take a shower you know, make you laugh or cook you the favorite dish that you want. I would hope for companionship, you know, this sort of idea of a sister circle that's been lost in our society, that we could kind of rebuild our villages, our birth villages. And so companionship would be my number one thing. And then the extension of that would just be like love. And just knowing that if each of us really did know to the fullest, regardless of the adults that should have loved us and should have told us and maybe have didn't do so. I would hope that all of us knew how deeply loved we are and how deeply important each of us is. And that if you are in the position that you are parenting someone, the more you 
love yourself, the better of a parent you'll be because you'll not only love the child, but you'll have this understanding of the importance of their humanity and the importance of their feelings. And you'll do like your very best to make sure that you do the least amount of harm on their emotional journeys as children. And so a lot of parents are stressed. I was one of them. A lot of parents, especially single parents and and folks going through relationships and abuse and economic stress, all the things that come up for people can really make you volatile or can make you unstable and the kids feel everything. And so they can feel that even if it's not directed towards them. And sometimes it's directed towards them and it's really harmful. And so if we could love upon ourselves to the point where when things come up, that we really are mindful about like how we address our children and how we engage our children so that they're not working out this stuff with their kids or working out this stuff later in life. And so I would hope that those two things could like go hand in hand so that, you know, if we have better supported parents and moms and stuff, that our kids will do better. I think it's just so critical because kids really suffer when parents don't have the support that they need, right? So that I would hope for that. And we actually should be fighting for that. It shouldn't even be a wish because it should be something. And we see this in other other countries. People are doing this. They're getting it right, right? They're making sure that parents have the support they need postpartum, that they have paid leave, that they have access to resources, you know, provided by the state. We should be doing this as a society and not just depending on like the private sector to do it or individuals, but as individuals too, you know, where we can, we should really just fill in where those gaps are. It would be my wish that everybody had that kind of support. That would be transformational, as you say. It's needed, right? (laughs) We can dream. (laughs) I love how you link community with self-love and self-care because I think lots of people get that the wrong way around. It's my fault that I don't love myself or I need to do more self-care. It's like, as you described, if you're a single mum living in poverty, it's not your fault that you are stressed and you are going to be in overwhelm. And the compassion sometimes gets lost in these conversations, I feel like, where it's like, well, that mum needs to work on her stuff. Yes, but with support from the community, it's not self-care, it's other care. It's not self-love, it's love in community. And I think that gets really lost often in these conversations. So I really appreciate that you linked those two and those came through. I could see that that was kind of coming through you and it was really beautiful. I've loved this conversation. I could definitely chat to you forever. I won't. I will I will allow you to get on with the rest of your afternoon. But I've adored it. Thank you again for the work that you do. How does someone find out more about you and Mama Glow and the incredible things that you're doing in the world. I'm on Instagram at Glow Maven and I'm just putting like musings and interesting things sometimes. And then on Mama Glow, mamaglow.com, you can find information, resources, classes, trainings. You can donate to the doula program if you want to support a doula. But if you want to become a doula, you can go there. If you want to find one, you can go there. And then all at Mama Glow on Instagram is a great place for just like, not just really fun posts, but there's like community in the comments. Like if you go in the comment section, people are like sharing resources and giving each other love and saying really sweet things. And I really love that. And so I would say if you're looking for just like a really fun educational 
content around, you know, the topics of like pregnancy and beyond, but also looking to kind of like get a little bit of love and oost. Like people in those comments are so active and they share really beautifully. And so I would say just check it out. And in general, like find the people who make you feel good. Like if you felt good in this podcast, like who else is part of this community, right? Like join a mailing list, join, you know, everything so that you can continue to keep yourself feeling full and keep your cup full. I'm such a big fan of this idea of like really curating what you take in, right? And making sure that you get good content that makes you feel good. And so I love that people have this as a resource because it's not every day that you can have a really beautiful conversation that's like, esoteric, but also grounded and really just like loving and people can emerge feeling good. And I think in a time like this, where you turn on the news and you can feel just like drained, like you really need content like this. And so download all the podcasts here. If you're getting on a plane or you're riding in your car or your bicycle or just at work or whatever, you can tune in for more, but I've loved this conversation too. And thank you for creating this space and thank you for such a thoughtful and beautiful series of questions and conversation together because it means a lot. And I just love you and I'm grateful for you, Zoe. No, feelings very mutual. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care, I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.